We'll look at the passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7? 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 219. And when you found that, would you stand with me and I'll read this passage for us? A little bit extended, not too long. I, I can do it. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Narrator tells us this. After the king, this is David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now the Hebrew has a word here, which the NIV does not include, but the beginning of verse 4 says, But. That's important. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I had been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling place. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did from the beginning. And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders or judges over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, listen, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then the king David, I love this, went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? As if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have spoken also about the future of your house, of, your, of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant how great you are. O sovereign Lord, there is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you have redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel for your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God, and now... 
Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you have promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing now on this time in his word. Spirit of God, we ask you to be present once again powerfully as we come to your word now. We ask you to speak to each one of our hearts. We believe that this is a word that you inspired to be written by men, but it is your word, O oh God, and we believe that it's a living word, that it is an active word. And Father, you say that whenever you send out this word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. I, Wesley, take you, Sarah, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, and forsaking all others, as long as we both shall live. This be uh, 14 years ago this August that I spoke that promise to my wife, and then she spoke that promise in return to me. But that whether you've made those same promises yourself to someone or you just hope to one day, the fact remains that every single couple who enters into the covenant of marriage together does so blindly for the most part. And what I mean by that is without having knowledge of what the next 40 to 50 minutes will hold, let alone the next 40 to 50 years. Sorry to tell you guys. Uh, now, that's not to suggest at all that that's a bad thing. In fact, I think that's, that's one of the things I'd say is truly beautiful about our wedding vows and that they promise with the full knowledge that we don't yet know what the future will bring. So, so our wedding vows are, are, are like a, a promise to remain faithful to our spouse, whatever is going to come, whatever will come in the future. And yet, sadly, if you look at the increasing prevalence of like no-fault divorce, uh, prenuptial agreements, people just deciding to not get married at all, but just live together now in our society and culture now, it seems like our collective presupposition as a culture overall is that our unknown futures are just probably going to be filled with a lot more worse than better, a lot more sickness than health, a lot more poor than wealth. And so, you know what, in the end, it's probably better not to make a promise at all. I think that seems to be where we've landed, which I think just highlights again and again the increasing way that our relationships today, including marriage, are viewed much more transactionally. I'm committed to you. I'm here as long as you meet these requirements, as opposed to covenantally. I'm committed to you, come what may. Well, we're continuing in our teaching series this morning, After God's Own Heart, looking at and learning from the life of David, as found in the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And in our passage today, what we see is God making this same kind of covenant promise to David which actually isn't as weird as it might sound because 
particularly if you know that marriage is actually one of the primary metaphors used throughout the Bible to describe God's relationship with his people. But what is strange and what does stand out about this covenant is that in stark contrast to the cultural norms that we have today that say it's better not to make promises if we think that things might go bad, what we see God doing here is making a covenant with David already knowing what the future holds and with the full knowledge that it does go bad. He already knows it's not going to turn out well, and he still makes the promise, which can we just be honest with each other this morning and admit that sounds like really, really dumb on God's part. Why, why would he do that? I can't even imagine someone making a marriage covenant with someone that they already knew ahead of time was going to be repeatedly unfaithful. And yet what makes the God of the Bible so profoundly different from us and from any other religion in the world and why commentators call this passage we're looking at here the theological center of First and Second Samuel, some even calling it the summit of the entire Old Testament, is because God reveals himself here as a God who condescends to the weakness of his beloved creation. Perfectly just and, and holy and yet lovingly and graciously accommodating to our failure in order to create a people for himself. And we'll look into how he accommodates himself as we get into this uh, passage together this morning. But one of the great hopes found for you and for me in our passage this morning is this, very simply. God views his relationship with you as a covenant, not a transaction. His, view, his relationship with you is, is a promise, not a business arrangement. And so when it comes to being a man and woman after God's own heart, <clears throat> what we learn in our passage today is that it's actually much, much less about what you do for God and way more about what He promises to do in you and also to create through you. And in order to help you understand just the profound grace and magnitude of that from our passage this morning, I want to show you just two things that I see there. We're going to talk about God's surprising promise and then David's surrendered response. Okay, God's surprising promise, David's surrendered response. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage? 2 Samuel chapter 7, would you follow along with me as we go through this and look at this pivotal moment in David's reign and the massive implication it continues to have for us to this day. Okay, so let's look first of all at God's surprising promise. God's surprising promise. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had this experience yourself. I have it quite frequently. Where have you had this idea in your mind that you just think is perfect? This is going to be the perfect uh, experience, the perfect vacation, the perfect gift for your spouse or significant other, whoever. And, and you just, in your mind, this is the perfect thing. Only to give it to them, they, they, you reveal the plan, they open the present, and the reaction right away is very clearly just, Really? Why, what in the world would make you think that I would love this? Has this happened to you? As I said, it happens to me all the time. Now, it's not as though, it's not as though your heart isn't in the right place, right? Your desire wasn't to, to show your love to that person, which is usually the only saving grace in that moment that keeps it from being a total failure. I mean, to this day, my family still talks about the Christmas that my dad bought my mom jumper cables for her Christmas gift. This was his gift. And, and 
you know, his genuine love and concern for my mom, should her car battery ever die, was, was clearly evident, even if his knowledge of what she would have actually wanted was not. And it's not exactly the same scenario, but, but in our passage this morning, it, it's, it's pretty close in that what you see in the inception of David's idea in verses 1 and 2, to build a house for God, to build a temple for God. Look with me there at verses 1 and 2. We're not told exactly how it comes to pass, but somehow David is sitting in his palace one day looking around, and, and all of a sudden it's like he just feels guilty. He feels guilt-ridden, he feels shamed as he looks around at the luxury he's living in and considers just the plain, ordinary tent that the ark of God is, is dwelling in. So he says in verse 2, you see, Here I am living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And although it doesn't say explicitly here that he's like, So I want to build a house for God too. Verse 3 shows us that this prophet Nathan clearly understands that to be his intention. And he sees nothing wrong with the idea either. He's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's build this house. Now, you've probably already seen one of the problems right away in that neither David nor Nathan have even bothered to consult with the one that they're so anxious to do this thing for. Uh, they haven't bothered to even come to God and say, is this something you actually want us to do? Which I think is a general principle that we can probably already draw from this, is that if you get an idea in your head that you think is just so good, you would just say, we, we don't even need to pray about this, let's just do it. That's probably a good indication that you should just, just hold off on applying for the building permit just yet. Uh, uh, you should always pray about it if, if, <laughs> if that's something you haven't thought of doing. And if you look at God's response to David, and, and through the prophet Nathan there in verses 4 through 7, you see God just very gently very gently letting David down from his big plans, reminding him both of the precedent set in the past for the ark's dwelling place. You see God basically saying, as my people have wandered without a place, it's important for them to see that my presence moves along with them. That's why I've been in a tent, so that they can see that I'm go I go with you wherever you go. As well as reminding David, hey, have you noticed, I never asked you to do this. I never asked you or anyone else before me to build a house for my name. I had never said that. Which is just, I think, one more indication, though, of the gracious condescension of God to us in our weakness and that he corrects David's idea without, like, crushing him, crushing his spirit, or just ignoring the genuine heart behind it. Very, just, just so gracious of God to just gently let him down without just being like, are you kidding me? That's the dumbest. He, he's so gentle in doing this. He doesn't crush his spirit, which, I don't know, if you're at all like me, I think it's something we could probably all grow in a bit in our relationships, in our relations with others and, and how when they bring ideas to us. But as you keep reading, and this is the surprising part now, you see that in God's interaction with David, it doesn't just end with a gentle correction. It concludes with a covenant promise of eternal proportions. Look again at God's words to David in verses 8 through 11. He tells him to say to David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will no longer oppress them anymore as they did from the beginning. And I, have, and I have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. And then there's the promise at the end. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. 
So, so, so you see God like tracing the history of his faithfulness to David all the way from the time when he was a, a young shepherd boy up until this time now when he is king over God's people, culminating in this incredible like switcheroo promise, this, this reversal of fortunes where, where God's basically saying, hey, look, I know that you had it in your heart to build a house for me, but here's the thing. I'm actually going to be the one who builds a house for you. Plans, plans are going to change significantly. I'm going to build a house for you, actually. Now, of course, this is a play on words because, of course, God's not building David a literal house. He's using house in the sense of like a dynasty or, or a royal lineage. But as you read on, what's clear is that God isn't just recounting his faithfulness in the past or up until the present. He's also promising covenant faithfulness to David now for all time, for establishing an eternal house, a forever kingdom through David's line, establishing his throne forever. Look at the second half of verse 14 and into 15. Regardless of the faithfulness or not of those who rule on that throne of David after him. It's not conditional on their obedience or how well they do. He's promising regardless of what comes. And I think that detail in particular just truly reveals the covenant nature of God's promise to David going forward. This is not a transactional relationship. He's saying, my promise to you will happen regardless of how well they perform. Which is something incredibly important for us to understand in our own lives today as you come to learn about how it is that the God of the Bible relates to us and relates to his creation. Because again, as I said when we began, increasingly in our culture today, transactional relationships, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. Those are often the expectation now, although I think it's safe to say that given our sinful bent. That's probably always been the way we lean throughout history. But as problematic as that can be between us interpersonally, it becomes even more like a truly great problem when we try to apply that transactional understanding of relationship onto God. When we put that onto Him and and presume that His commitment to us is also based on how well we perform, what we do for Him. Which is why it's so powerfully revealing when God traces the entire trajectory of David's life from his time as a shepherd boy until its eventual end, which he says it will come, and then pointing to his steadfast love, his steadfast faithfulness throughout, over and over again, look, completely independent of anything David has done for him. He's saying, my faithfulness has been with you all through your life. You haven't built a house for me. You haven't done anything for me. It's just been with you. You've just had it because I promised it to you. And what God is revealing to David then and to you and to me today is that's what my love for you is like. That's what a relationship with me looks like. It's not at all about what you do for me so that I'll love you. It's about what I do in and through you because of my covenant love that I've promised to you. And that's powerful, right? That's that's life-changing when we can see that and understand it and believe it, believe that that's true. Because even for those of us who know God's love, even for those who would say we've been redeemed by it, we can still slip back into that joy-stealing mindset that feels like, no, no, we still got to keep doing stuff for God for him to love us. Oh, I didn't have my quiet time today. God's probably not going to give me a good day. He's probably mad at me. He probably doesn't love me as much today. Fill in the blank, anything. We feel like what I do for God is what makes his love for me consistent. And sadly, I think one of the primary reasons for that is because that's 
our ex- consistent experience pretty much everywhere else in our lives, including from those people who are supposed to and have promised to love us covenantally. We experience that all around us, this transactional understanding of love. And so on the one hand, I think an important takeaway for us from all of this is that we need to constantly, constantly, constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. That's the first thing. We need to remind ourselves of the truth that my acceptance before God, his faithful love for me never was and never will be based on my performance or what I do for God, but solely based on Jesus' performance and what he did for me. That's the basis of my relationship with God. But on the other hand, given Jesus' words in John 13 stating, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I think another important takeaway would be to ask ourselves this. How am I allowing the covenant love of God that I've experienced to now shape the way that I love others? So that when they experience love from me, it more closely mirrors God's love than the love of the world, this transactional love. I think it needs to shape the way we love if we've truly been transformed by ourselves. Okay, that's, that's God's surprising promise. Last thing I want to look at together with you is David's surrendered response. David's surrendered response, and I think this is really important for us to look at because it teaches us about how a man or woman after God's own heart is to respond when our plans and God's plans come into direct conflict with each other, which probably happens way more often than we care to admit. And something very interesting to see is that David's entire response to God's loving redirection of his plans is actually summed up in a single action. And you see it there in verse 18. Look with me. David has formed this plan with the best of intentions to build a house for God. God has gently refused David's proposal and surprisingly promised instead to establish a house for David for all time. And then in verse 18, we read this. And then the king went in and sat before the Lord sat down before the Lord. And the reason that that sitting before God is so significant is because, as one commentator put it, it is the action that puts David out of the action. The action of sitting is the action that puts David out of the action. It's an act of surrender. It's an act of submission. It's a, it's a posture of learning. Anyone who's a teacher here, what do you say when you're ready to begin class? Class, sit down. It's time to learn. It's a, it's a, a posture of humility and learning to sit before God. And that's just what David is doing here in response to what's just been revealed to him. Now, I know there's times sitting can also be a, a posture of defiance or a posture of resignation, like a, a sit-in protest. We've heard about these, or maybe the way that my dog growing up would sometimes just decide to sit down as she got older. If she felt the walk that I had taken her on was too long, she'd just be like, no, we're not, we're not going any further here. <laughs> sometimes that's, that's what sitting is here, but that, that's not what's going on here with David. He's not just saying, fine, do whatever you want, God. That's not what he's doing. No, as pastor and author Eugene Peterson states in his commentary, When David sits down before God, it is the farthest thing from passivity or resignation. It is prayer. When David sat down, the real action started. And the reason we know it's prayer and not defiance or resignation is because of what David goes on to say after he sits down. 
And we have this recorded for us in the remaining verses of our, our passage here, this, this beautiful, powerful prayer in which David reflects not only on God's faithfulness just to him, but on his faithfulness to the people of Israel as a whole. And what's also very telling as it relates to David's surrender is the language you see him using in this prayer of the king. The prayer of the king repeatedly identifying himself, you see here, not with arrogance, not with royal titles, calling himself humbly the servant of the Lord, your servant. Nine times through this prayer, he refers to himself as your servant. Asking questions like, who am I? What is my family even that the sovereign Lord and creator of all things would be so kind and gracious, generous to someone like me? You can see he's truly been humbled, truly surrendered himself. And then, I love the way David ends this prayer in light of his, God's response to him. Verse 26 and 27, look there, <coughs> saying basically, okay, God, okay, yes, let's do it your way. Keep forever the promise you have made to me. Why? Not, not so that my name will be great, God. No, 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 no. So that your name, O oh God, will be great forever. Keep your promise because that's going to make your name great. People will see that you are the true king. You are the true ruler over your people. You are the almighty God who can do things like taking an insignificant shepherd boy and establishing him as king over an everlasting kingdom. And here's one of the things that stands out to me most about all that and that I think we can all learn from this man after God's own heart, and it's this. It's the way David listens and then adjusts his course when God speaks. He listens to God and then adjusts his course to align with what God says when he speaks. And I don't know if this is just a man problem in particular or a people problem in general. I'm asking that rhetorically. I'm not looking for a response. But this is, uh, over and over again, I find myself struggling to do these two things very well. Really listening and being willing to adjust my course, whether that's with my family or just countless times in my relationship with God. And I think in the end, what it comes down to is just simply pride. It's my pride to, that just refuses to listen to an alternate perspective to my own or being willing to adjust a plan that I put in place. And honestly, when you think about it, David's plan to build a house for God, it's, it's really good, isn't it? This is a good thing he wants to do. It's a really beautiful expression of his love for God, his desire to see God's name, honor, and praise. It would have been so, so, so easy for David just to cling to that plan, particularly with his role now as the king over Israel, to hang on to that, just following God around the house with the proverbial you know, jumper cable, saying, this is a good gift. You, you, should, you should be happy to receive such a gift from me. And yet what we see instead is the king of Israel in this truly powerful, just carry underwood, Jesus take the wheel moment, sitting before God, listening to what's been spoken and humbling himself, surrendering his plans, surrendering his ambitions, and again, even finding the courage at the end to ask God, yes, do just as you've promised with these adjusted plans. Your plan is way better. Let's do your plan. Now, from a person-to-person perspective, I think we can already see how this kind of listening and willingness to adjust our course, are, 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 those are obvious. The benefits are obvious. When it comes to doing that with God, I think the benefits are equally great. And yet, 
I wonder if the reasons behind why we struggle to do this so often, to really listen to God and be willing to adjust our plans to align with His, might not be a little bit more subtle. And I think a lot of it has to do with what we've been talking about this morning, that transactional understanding of love that we kind of just, we just sit in that day in and day out. And here's what I mean. You can struggle to listen to God's voice, adjust your plan to align with His just because you're prideful. You're pridefully just clinging to that plan. No, this is a good plan. And although you might never state it that way, your belief is, I, I know better than you, God. My plan is better than yours, so we're going to do my plan. That, that's one option. But on the other hand, you can also struggle to listen to God's voice and adjust your plans to align with His because you're doing something that God would be pleased with. You think He'd be pleased with. And again, although you never say it this way, your, your intent is actually to use that act in order to bargain with God. I know this is something that God would want from me. I know this is what he wants me to do. And I'm going to use that now to bargain with him to get what I want from him. It's like the uh, woman that uh, Tim Keller sometimes refers to who came to one of his evening presentations one time, came up to him afterwards as he was doing this gospel presentation, and she said, I don't actually like this whole saved by grace, is salvation by grace alone. In fact, I'm, I'm terrified by it. And when he pressed her a bit more, well, what do you mean? Tell me more. She said, because if I can contribute even the smallest part to my salvation, then I maintain at least some measure of control with God. But if salvation is completely an act of grace, then there's nothing that God could not ask of me. She understood it right, didn't she? So all this to say, if you sense resistance in your heart to, to listening to God, to be obedient to Him, and you sense that He is changing your plans, correcting your course to something different, I think it's important to us to discern, is that just pride? Am I just hanging on to this idea, I know better than you, God? Or, without even thinking about it, are we actually, by our actions, preferring our relationship with God to be more transactional? In the end, I think the thing that makes this whole exchange between David and God the most profound, for me anyways, is that not only does God reveal himself as a covenant promising God, committed to us regardless of the perfection of our performance, he also reveals himself, as we continue to read on, as the covenant promise keeping God. The God who, who can be trusted when he makes this promise, he's faithful to carry it out. Look again at what God says in verses 12 and 13. After promising that he will establish a house for David, he says, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will be the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So you see, God, God's promise is that one of David's own offspring will be the one to build this literal house, this, this temple for his name that David wanted to build. Did God keep that promise? Is, is, that, is that something that actually happened in history? Yeah, okay, I know I'm relying on some of you to have some kind of Old Testament history pieces, you know, in the vestiges of your mind here. Did that happen? Did God do this? Yes, yes okay. Who did, who, who, which son of David went on to build, to build the temple? Solomon. Solomon. Man, you guys, five points for everybody. 
Solomon, yes, Solomon is the one who goes on to build this incredible temple for, for God in Jerusalem. There's this huge celebration and this amazing prayer that he prayed. This happens, right? This absolutely is a promise that God made, and he keeps it. And yeah, I don't know if this happens to you too, but as you keep reading the promise that God made to David, and the rest of verse 13 and into verse 16, if you're at all like me, there's this weird tension as you read it. Do you ever find yourself kind of like, yeah, I could, see, I could see where this part fits, but how does, that, how does that fit? This happens really often, especially when you read prophecy and stuff. It's like, is that, is that happening now? Or when is he? There's a weird tension as you read the promise here, and I think it's because some of these things seem to fit, and then other parts don't seem to fit. Like, look again at verse 13. Yes, David's son Solomon builds the house for God. He builds the temple. But while Solomon certainly does have a long, prosperous reign, has anybody seen King Solomon on CNN when they're doing a, a report about the state of Israel? No, no, because he's thousands of years dead. So how is it that his, this, this, his throne is established forever? He said, I'm going to establish his throne forever. What about all this other stuff? Verse 14 about how God being the father of one of David's sons or punishing him with floggings inflicted by men. Where do we see that stuff happening in the dynasty of David? Sometimes it feels like it fits. Other times we're like, I don't know. In fact, think about it. Is there a single son in the line of David who's still ruling on the throne today? It's a trick question. The answer is yes. Yeah, there is but only one, and one who actually fulfills everything that God promised here to David in our passage today. You, we, we see bits and, and prophecies and allusions to him here and there, but all of a sudden, when we get to another prophet in Isaiah, we read this, uh, uh, that, that speaks about this son of David, the people walking in darkness, says Isaiah, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Listen, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then suddenly, 2,000 years ago, a bright light shines in the sky, signaling the arrival of this son from the house of David. He's here. Okay, but what about this other stuff, though? How, how, is, how is Jesus... The, uh, uh, the son of the father. And the father, he's going to be a son to him. How does that happen? Well, remember in Luke 2, angel Gabriel comes to a virgin and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus doesn't have a human father. That's why he's called the Son of God for one of the many reasons. Okay, what about that other stuff? In verse 14, when he was saying he's going to be uh, punished with the rod and, and floggings of men. When, when does that happen to Jesus? Punished for wrongdoing. I thought Jesus was sinless. How, how is he punished for wrongdoing? Well, Isaiah tells us again, chapter 53, 
Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted, but, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So Jesus was punished for wrongdoing, just not his own. Okay, what about the house for my name? He said he's going to build a house for my name. Son of David will build. Now, we know Solomon already built that, but then you go to Jerusalem today. Is there a temple there? There's no temple there. So, so okay. All right, one, one part of God's promise wasn't fulfilled. Is that, is that right? Well, listen to Jesus, son of David himself, standing outside that very temple in Jerusalem, John 2. Stating, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The next verse, 21, telling us that that temple Jesus was referring to was his own body. And when that temple is destroyed, Jesus gives up his life on the cross and then is raised and ascended to heaven. It doesn't end there either, because then, at Pentecost, he pours out the Spirit who comes to dwell in all who believe in him by faith, creating the very church, the very people called by his name that he promised he would build. Wait, 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 what? Okay, wait, the, the, the house for God's name isn't a place, but a people? Now, think about it. What is a temple? What is a temple? What is a house for God, but a place where God dwells by his spirit, and that where God is then worshipped and praised, and sacrifices are offered to him? Numerous times through the New Testament letters, Paul's letters, you hear him referring to both the individuals who make up the church as well as the church collectively itself as what? The temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. As, as the dwelling place for God. Not a structure, but a people. I think it's the Apostle Peter who states it most clearly of all. First Peter 2 when he writes, As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Don't you see what this means? You are the house for God's name to dwell. It's you. It's me. That, that's, that's why I, I say to us repeatedly again and again, this this building. This is not Dunbar Heights Baptist Church. You are. I am. We are the church that gathers here every Sunday in this building and then spreads out to every corner of Vancouver when we leave. Living stones in whom the Spirit dwells, spread out to every corner, built into an everlasting house for God's name and ruled over by the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus